You're listening to Five Things with Lisa Birnbach. Hi, it's Lisa Birnbach. Is it hot enough for you? Is it wet enough for you? Do you like the humidity? It's been such a crazy news cycle that even the weather is taking precedence over it. It is crazy weather all over the country. In New York, we had a flood alert last night. I got drenched in the flood. It was raining so hard, and yet it's still in the 90s, and the humidity is still in the 90s, and it's awful. And when I was in Los Angeles a couple of weeks ago, I experienced those earthquakes. And if you've never been in an earthquake, by the time you're aware of what it is or what has happened, it's pretty much over. And you think, oh, wow, that was an earthquake, or was that one? There were two, as you know, two days in a row. It turned out that the <laughs> the aftershock was the real shock, and the shock before the real shock was a pre-shock. The vocabulary changes. And we knew it was an earthquake, but it just went on for so long. And the first few moments, you feel like you're being rocked, lulled, gently lulled. And then when it doesn't stop, you think, this could be it. You do have that feeling. It's something else. The point of my little chat with you today is Mother Nature is stronger than all of us. Any despot, any political party, stronger even than Mitch McConnell's stubborn streak. So there you go. It's all about the weather. Today, I look forward to hearing from our guest, Yale Hollander, lawyer turned stand-up comedian, about to celebrate his third birthday behind the microphone. But first, here are my five things that make life better. Number one is this really cool film I found online. I don't know how I found it. I guess I could go back into history and back, back, back and figure it out, but it doesn't matter. It's a film that's about nine or 10 minutes long, made by a French-Russian man in 1915, how he had a little film camera—well, they weren't little then. They weren't <laughs> handheld. But he had a film camera. The film is of the master artists Monet, Renoir, Rodin, and Degas. And it's a lot of walking, but Claude Monet is painting in his garden in Giverny, and you see Rodin sculpting in his studio. And of course, they're all dressed in ties and jackets and hats, and several of them are smoking. And this little scrap of film is set now to modern music, which doesn't really enhance it, in my opinion. But of course, much like home movies, like even the Birnbach family home movies of the 60s and 70s, there's a lot of not knowing where to look or what to do. The Renoir segment just shows him walking and walking. Monet and Renoir smoked and worked, and they were old. They were 75 years old in 1915. And what is thrilling about this film is that it makes these great names, these great icons of fine art. It makes them real. Watching them shuffle down the street. They weren't museum worthy in their lifetimes. In fact, their work was considered an affront to the French Academy in those days. They had to have a kind of anti-show 
when the French Academy was doing its show. Impressionism was considered vulgar. But a 75-year-old man who looked like Father Christmas is painting, and it's Renoir, and it's Giverny, which if you ever go to France, you can go to his gardens. They look like a painting. And he was just like an old guy painting. He wasn't thinking, oh, I'm painting Giverny and the water lilies and they'll be in the museum and people will pay money to see them. No, he was just doing what he loved to do. When you consider that Mick Jagger will be 76 next week, ah, but I digress. Anyway, as we know, from our studies in art history, Monet's eyesight failed terribly, but he still worked steadily. This film makes them human. It makes them real. And seeing them on film makes them feel closer to us because you know what? We all lived in the age of film. Okay. And it's obviously, the clip is on my website, lisabernbach.com, so you can all enjoy it too. I mean, it's not thrilling in the sense of action, it's thrilling that these people were captured on film and you can look at them. Number two, Arnold Palmer, the drink. I imagine that Arnold Palmer, the man, was nice too, but the drink is really excellent. It's a combination of iced tea and lemonade, and it's a perfect summer cooler. The summer is an excellent one to experiment with Arnold Palmer. You decide if you want more lemonade, more iced tea, however you want to do it. By the way... Very gratifying to discover that, as I hoped, the Arnold Palmer drink has its own Wikipedia page. I mean, who doesn't? And, of course, because it's Wikipedia, the history may be somewhat apocryphal. Some people call it the half and half, by the way. And some people think of a, an Arnold Palmer as this drink spiked with vodka, I think. But the story is that Arnold Palmer went to the Augusta National Golf Club, which is where the Masters tournament is held every year, and asked for a Mr. Palmer. So who knows? Whatever you call it, enjoy it. Number three. This is going to be about non-dairy food opportunities. Okay, you know that I have, because I, I now share to all of you in the ether. You know that I am now trying to find non-dairy versions of the many dairy products I love. I would say as a food group, dairy is pretty much my favorite. And I have really foregone the pleasure of dairy for the last several months or many months. And I keep hoping to find a dairy-free yogurt. And then I have one. I love it. I tell you all about it, and then the third time I try it, it grosses me out because it doesn't taste good. It tastes like something that wants to be something else. Okay, I tried something called the Daya New York-style cheesecake. They spell it with a Z, cheese with a Z. <clears throat> okay, but it does taste, in my memory like the old Sara Lee cheesecakes that you had to buy in the refrigerator section. It's not made of cream cheese. It's made of desiccated coconut, evaporated, uh, anyway, tapioca starch. I have all the ingredients on the website too. But give it a whirl. I actually thought it was pretty good if you need something sweet after dinner and you're dairy-free also. And my sincere condolences if you are. Okay, number four. I just wrote 
my first piece for the Washington Post. It was a book review of a book about John Kennedy Jr. And before one can write for the Post or be vetted by the Post, you have to read their ethics statement and then sign it. It's an excellent, excellent statement. It's an excellent template for decency and accuracy and bias-free writing. And I'm going to find out whether I'm allowed to reprint it on the website at lisabernbach.com because it, it, it also makes you appreciate what their journalists do and all journalists do, which leads us elegantly to number five. Julie K. Brown, I just am so impressed with this tireless reporter at the Miami Herald who has almost single-handedly brought back the sickening case of Jeffrey Epstein. Without her pursuit, we might still be talking about, what, E. Jean Carroll? Anyway, Julie Brown, applause, applause to you. It's not fun work doing what she's doing. I, I need to remind you, as a journalist, you know, it's exciting to discover news bits of a story and, and link the bits together and find out a why and how and so on, the mechanics of finding out a story. But fun, when you're reporting on monstrous behavior where people were really severely wounded, emotionally damaged, that's not fun. It's hard work. So on that note, let's talk to Yale. When I first learned about Yale Hollander, he was a lawyer living in St. Louis who dressed prep, who ate ribs before his meetings with his synagogue. Those were pork ribs and was an all around fun guy. Now Yale has made a huge reinvention. He's one of St. Louis's favorite local comedians, and I admire anybody who changes his or her life like that. Hey, Yale. Hello, Lisa. It is so nice to talk to you. I feel very close to you because we are in what feels like, and not just you, I mean all of us, I feel like we're in constant touch because yes. of Twitter and because of Facebook and, and maybe Instagram, although that's that's not my my favorite place to be. But I feel like I know what's going on. And it's embarrassing almost how much I feel I know is going on. Well, we're, we are the, the best of imaginary Internet friends, as I like to say. Oh, how very kind. So we're a B, B O C I F F sort of. Sure. Or whatever that is. Best of imaginary cyber friends. Yes, we are. There you go. I like that. Yes, I like we're, that. Cyber we're, friends. We're very tight. We're very tight. And we actually met briefly in 2010, as I recall. We did. Yes. And in the in the basement of Saks Fifth Avenue at Plaza Frontenac. As as one does. As one does. Yes. 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 So tell me how this transition from after now wait, I have to look at your your email after 17 years practicing law as both a litigator and a firm principal, how you had the guts or epiphany that you needed to stand up behind a microphone and get heckled. 
Well, it's uh, well. First of all, I guess I should I, I, I should disclose uh, that I have two teenage daughters. So yes. the heckling thing uh, <laughs> is just something that regularly occurs anyway. So so that's uh, you know that 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 was uh, at least a little bit of preparation. Although they uh, only one of them was a teenager when I when I first started uh-huh. uh, doing this. But uh, here's here's kind of the the best of of both worlds story is that I have been able to maintain a firm foot in both the legal camp and in the in the comedy camp. Uh, I I hold uh, no disillusions whatsoever that I'm ever going to be able to make a sustainable income, especially with uh, one child college bound in a year and another one three years after that, wow. uh, that I'm ever going to be able to make stand-up comedy my principal source of income. But luckily, three years ago, uh, one summer when both of my children were away at sleepaway camp. Safely, uh, had- safely away. Safely away, yes. Safely away, two states away. Uh, I finally made the decision that I had seen as many uh, episodes of HGTV House Hunters as I had cared to see uh, with my wife and announced that I was going to a comedy club uh, to give Open Mic a try. And I said, nothing will probably come of this, but it's an itch that I've been wanting to scratch for uh, over 30 years since the last time I tried stand-up comedy to great um, uh, rejection and horror. Um, So I'm going to get this out of my system, and uh, I'll see you later. And uh, I came back, and she didn't even have to ask me how it went. She's like, you're going back next week too, aren't you? I said, yeah, I already signed up. And from there, it's been history. And... All the comedians I know say it takes about a year for a minute of a really great polished act. Um, But that was maybe in the olden days when you when when a year did. I don't know that when time felt different from the way time feels now. You can't, you don't have a year, a minute anymore to hone your act. How long did it take you to get your first great 15 minutes? And whose comedy would you say that we've all heard of has influenced you the most? Oh, goodness. There, there, I, I borrow, not borrow, but I am inspired by so many different comics. I mean, one of the, one of the uh, great privileges, I guess, that that I had being born when I was born is that I, you know, grew up in the golden age of The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson Mm -hmm. when all the great comics uh, were coming through and doing their their hot fives and whatnot. So I picked up a lot of that. I was also around uh, for the uh, birth of like HBO and their comedy specials that they had with mm-hmm. Robin Williams and, and Richard Belzer and the Young Comedians shows and, and Eddie Murphy uh, and, of course, uh, the great George Carlin. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to think that I'm inspired by a lot. Um, you know, I, I, Joan Rivers, actually, is one not necessarily from a material standpoint, but from her work ethic. She yes. was an unbelievable, tireless curator yes. of her own comedy. She had these card files yes. with all kinds of topics and, and thoughts like that. 
I've got a drawer in my room. Now, mind you, I have only been doing this for three years, but I have got a drawer in my room that is filled to the brim with uh, pocket-sized Moleskine notebooks uh, of all of all of my bits, all of my ideas, everything like that. Uh, I I won't get rid of anything because I want to make sure that you know I may I may go back to something that I thought about three years ago right. and start polishing that up and and finally I've got a tag for this I you know so I don't I'm a pack rat so you when well, it comes to that she uh, one thing that was great about Joan Rivers was how deeply she cared about her act and how you're right how how tireless she was even you know from even after she'd achieved huge success and um you know it takes work it is a job it is that's what it takes to be successful at it and your your style Exactly. Do you ever feel like, oh, it's coming, it's coming, you audience are going to be so lucky when you hear this? Uh, Sometimes. I like to to build my sets in a way, uh, you know, depending on how much time I have will will depend on where I put the the good stuff. Sometimes you have to put that up front to to really grab an audience. If I'm if I'm working um, a, a venue that I've never been to before or that I suspect is going to be uh, a little tricky to work. I'll usually put the best, best stuff right up front uh-huh. so that hopefully, hopefully I know whether I'm either going to get a laugh or if we're dealing with the lost cause 30 seconds in. Right. And then it just becomes a salvage operation. If it's, you know, some of the shows that that I produce myself because I'm, I'm producing uh, two monthly shows right now in St. Louis, hopefully soon to be four. Um, a lot of times I'll try some newer things in there uh, and uh, I'll, I'll leave the, the, the golden nuggets in as part of the core of the, of the routine, but I'll, I'll try some newer, sometimes some more topical stuff, you know, just to, just to warm it up a little bit. Well, I've, been to a million comedy clubs and I have to say it doesn't look you know when when people are first gathering unless there's a big group of drunken people it often seems like oh look at this benign crowd it'll be fine and I've seen the crowd turn I've seen a comedian turn on a crowd for no apparent reason I've Mm. just seen I've seen some really horrible exchanges or relationships between an audience and a comedian. I've also seen, you know, bad comedians and and seen them be uh, punished in a way. Um, sure. I guess, I guess, and people have said to me once or twice, uh, well, you're funny, Lisa. Why don't you do stand-up? And I could not bear doing that. I mean, Doing a podcast is rough enough, you know, but not getting feedback from from your audience for years or not getting good feedback or, right. or I mean, it, it's there's a level of, um, I think, masochism that I just don't have. Well, here's here's the thing. And ambition. And I mean, I, right. I think the ambition cancels the masochism. This is true, but here's the thing, and I was just saying this last night 
to our mutual uh, cyber friend, uh, Mr. Colt Smith. Yes. Who did his first open mic last night. No. Uh, in, he yes, did? he did. In, 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 Salt, Lake in, in Salt Lake City? Yes. Wow. He did. he did his first open mic last night. And the one thing I said is, have fun. And if you don't, quit. So when somebody says to you, oh, you know, I think you ought to try stand-up comedy. If your first immediate response to that is not, oh, that sounds like fun, even if that is followed by however, but if the first <laughs> thing out of your head is not, oh, that sounds like fun, stay away. Yeah. Stay on the other side of the mic because yes. if because it, it is a lot of work. Uh, it is a test of your own uh, self-worth sometimes. I know there are a lot of comedians, uh, and to be quite candid and not so terribly uh, revelatory, uh, myself included, uh, that, you know, have anxiety and depression and things like that. And, you know, but uh, the, the drive and the desire and the love for comedy is so strong right. that you you put those things aside because it's something that you really love to do and you really want to do it. So, And I get it. Yeah. I mean, when I'm on a stage and people laugh, it's a feeling unlike anything. It's so thrilling. But but luckily, I, I, I don't I don't have that itch that you have described so well. And I, you know, when I get it, it's just, it's fine. It's wonderful. Right. Then you're in, then you're in the right place for where you want to be. I think so. I think so. Well, um, I think it's very cool that you're now mentoring Colt. I didn't know that our mutual cyber friend who is a scientist, uh, had the same itch you do and, or did. And I think I think it's what I love about this story is that from within three years, you're now mentoring newer comics. Um, there's such a, a, a misunderstanding in the world outside of comedy clubs that comedians are just so competitive with one another that people steal jokes, that people steal premises, that nobody would help a fellow or sister comedian out, but I don't think that's the case at all. I think that may be the case in the, uh, not necessarily in the upper levels of of comedy. Uh, I think kind of in the intermediate levels where people believe that they are on the verge of, you know, breaking into that upper echelon, I think there is some competition at the at the level that I'm at, and of course I'm I'm a unique case in that I fully recognize that I do not have a Netflix special in the offing. <laughs> I am not going to be doing a week residency at the Comedy Store in L.A. or at the Cellar in New York. Uh-huh. I am perfectly content being a local comic. Uh, that you know my my highest professional career aspirations uh, is to get weekend hosting work at uh, a couple of the the bigger comedy clubs uh, here in St. Louis. I mean, that's really what I want to do. I want to be able to have access to the big time touring headliners 
that are coming in to be able to hang out with them in the green room yeah. and talk shop and maybe get some some tips, then go out there and do seven to ten minutes in front of a packed house, get some laughs, and then get out of the way for the for the big kids to let them do their thing. That's that's what what I want to do. But for others where they are literally fighting for quality stage time, I can I can understand where there's competitive nature, but I feel given given my my age, given my business experience, and given the fact that yeah, I can put together um I've I've done as as much as, as forty minutes of time. Wow. Um I think my sweet spot is really kind of in the ten to twenty minute range where I can put together a wall to wall really tight set without having to go into any experimental uh untested stuff. Mm-hmm. Um what what I want to do is I want to create opportunities for those comics that are looking uh, to get to that next level, to get the stage time and maybe put a little money in their pocket. Yeah. I want to be like Bud Friedman. Yes. You know, Bud Friedman, you know, evening at the improv. Right. I mean, he, he owned the club. He did the booking and he was the first guy out and he did his, you know, five to seven minutes and then got the heck out of the way for the professionals. That's that's kind of if if I was going to have any kind of a grand career aspiration, it would be to be Bud Friedman, except without the obnoxious monocle. Um, Yale, who did the best show that you've ever seen in person? What was the oh, best show you saw? Oh, wow. That's well, I've I've had a number. I've had the privilege of seeing just a number of of memorable comedy shows. When I was a freshman at the University of Missouri in 1986, uh, the student government had a free uh, comedy show at our auditorium, Jesse Auditorium, 2000 Seat Hall. Some fraternity brothers of mine and I decided we were going to go to this thing. We showed up. There were maybe, I don't know, maybe 300 people. We sat in the front row, and they brought this guy out. A uh, fella who had just done Letterman a few weeks earlier, a guy named Jerry Seinfeld. Ah, so that became you know a story that that I could tell later on. That yeah, I was sitting three feet away from Jerry Seinfeld when when uh, he did his his first touring hour. There there have just been a number of of wonderfully memorable shows. Another one from college, Stephen Wright. Mm. Uh, got to see him. Got to see George Carlin. Wow. Night- in 1995 at the Westport Playhouse, I've led a charmed comedy life when it comes to being able to see uh, some of my favorites up close and personal. That's cool. That's really cool. Well, it's that time. So I have to ask you what your five things are. Um, well, yes. Yeah. So let's switch on that hat since you're good at, right. at switching. And... Let's start with number one. All right. Well, we will we will start as everybody should start with breakfast. Breakfast <laughs> is one of my five favorite things, both the noun and the verb. <laughs> if we if we want to go there, oh, which, we do, um, we uh, do. Yes, yeah. and I did, and, and I you did. did. 
I I love breakfast. Uh, you know, again, I had a, a, a wonderful, uh, well, for St. Louis standards, a wonderful bagel this morning with lox. Uh, I love eggs. I love eggs Benedict. I love omelets. I love eggs in the basket. I, I love bacon and hash browns and and waffles, the occasional pancake. Uh, I just I, I love breakfast foods. You know, breakfast for dinner is a is a thrill for me. I I enjoy uh, doing that uh, when I can when I can get away with it. Um, but more than that, it is the act of of breakfast. When I was uh, uh, a, a kid, uh, still in elementary school, uh, at that time my father was in retail. He owned uh, a small chain of stores throughout the state of Missouri. We were living in the state capital at that time, Jefferson City. Uh, and every day before he would go to work and I would go to school, we would sit down at the breakfast to get, uh, table together and, and eat our cereal and drink our juice and watch the CBS Morning News Aww. with Hughes Rudd. Uh, and then uh, Bob Schieffer and uh, Richard Threlkeld and Bruce Morton, all the all the great newsmen of the past. Yes. So n- not only did I have that quality time with my dad, but I was actually learning about current events and learning about the world and and being up on things. So it was as much a uh, a an educational nourishment as it was a uh, vitamins and minerals and proteins and things like that nourishment. And then, of course, on Sundays, I had the privilege of double dipping. We would have we would have our regular Sunday breakfast uh, and watch, of course, uh, CBS, CBS News Sunday, Sunday. morning uh-huh. with the, the, the late, great Charles Kuralt. Uh And then <laughs> I would go across the street where my grandparents live, uh-huh. uh, yes, in the shtetl of Jefferson City uh, <laughs> on the cul-de-sac, uh, and uh, uh, watch Meet the Press with my grandfather and have a second breakfast that my grandmother would cook. Oh, so, man. And, I was a, and I've been a coffee drinker since I was four. So that's seriously? always Yes, seriously. Wow. Uh, so that's almost always been a part of... Uh, of the ritual as well, and of course, I love coffee. And I guess it should—I I guess I should have prefaced my five things by saying I'm, I'm taking the wheel of fortune approach to this, where certain things are a given, kind of like the, the R S T N L and E. Yes. Um, so yes. one of my givens, obviously, is coffee and and family and right. friends. So right. I just assume those are kind of universal among everybody. Correct. So I put those off to the side in order to get to my five more interesting things. Excellent. I appreciate that. Oh, sure. And I love breakfast, too, but I don't love it now because I'm not supposed to eat eggs, so I don't want to go into it. I am not competing. I'm just saying I I get it. If I could eat a real breakfast like that every day, I'd be very happy. But do you at least take some time in the morning to have a cup of coffee and sit and read the newspaper or or get caught up on on something that doesn't emit from a small screen uh, that you keep in your pocket. Sometimes. Sometimes. sometimes, But but if I am using the thingy, I am looking at the New York Times. There you go. There you go. That's acceptable. Thank you. And the coffee is, is, uh, I'm very uh, particular about my first cup of coffee, which I make using Costa Rican and Brazilian beans that I 
put together. I don't want to talk about it because it's very personal. It's more personal than my exhibits, really, how I make my coffee. But it's very special and it's very strong. It's a it's it's a ritual type thing, yes. It we, is a ritual. We, we, we no, definitely have those things. Yes. Now number two, I saw your list. I have no idea what this is. Number two, well, you you will understand because I know that you have had an experience with this. Okay. Okay. Number two is yacht rock. Yacht rock is a genre of music. It really only got that sobriquet probably about maybe 10 years ago. This is the genre of music that really started popping up around the mid-1970s, peaking in the very early 80s, and then kind of trickling out um, shortly thereafter. This is kind of that genre of music that's very uh, relaxing, very breezy, little bit poppy, very light on the guitars. We're talking about Steely Dan, a band mm-hmm. I know that you are familiar with because I know you went to one of those Beacon Theater shows last year. Absolutely. Uh, that's what Mike, a cyber best friend knows. That's right. That's right. right. But, but Michael McDonald and right. the Michael McDonald era of the Doobie Brothers. And right. he is, by the way, a proud native son of St. Louis. Ah, and he uh, also has occasionally played with Steely Dan. He has played with Steely Dan. He and Donald Fagan and another titan of Yacht Rock, Boz Skaggs. Oh. Uh, they have a band uh, that occasionally tours called the Dukes of September. And I saw them, uh, I want to say 2012, I guess it was, front row for that. And that was one of the most magnificent evenings of my existence. Wow. Fagan and McDonald and Boz Skaggs doing all of their great hits, but then also doing some of the great uh, Motown uh, hits uh, of the of the 60s. Uh, now, so how, that was... how come I haven't heard of Yacht Rock? I mean, I, I know the musicians you're discussing. I probably know every song on Silk Degrees. Not bragging. Oh. Not bragging, but every lyric uh, of Boz Skagg's great album. How how have I never heard of Yacht Rock? And does it make it less rocky? Does it make it less authentic to call it Yacht Rock? Does it... Does I think it, it's a... Are, is the next step after Yacht Rock Tech Bros Rock or, you know, Hedge Fund Rock? Oh, gosh. I, I can only hope not. Yes. I can only hope not. But, you know, I, I, I really don't know. I mean, I'm a big listener uh, of uh, Sirius XM, and they have uh, a Yacht Rock channel that runs on their regular uh, schedule of offerings between Memorial Day and Labor Day, but it's available year-round. So it's kind of an online app. It's associated with summer, either the yes. noun or the verb. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. But okay. It's, it's, See, this it's, it's is how I learn fun. things. Exactly. Well, of course. I mean, you know, this is as much an educational pursuit for you as it is for us, your loyal listeners. Yes, thank you. And by the way, let me ask you something about these Dukes of September. Yes. What the song from Silk Degrees, I mean, Boz Skaggs sings it, but so do a lot of people. What do you want the girl to do, right? Mm-hmm. Or, mm-hmm. Who wrote that song? That's a good question. 
because I've heard a lot of artists sing it, and I think it was not written by Boz Skaggs, a prep school graduate. I, I don't think know. it I was. Would... I'm I'm asking my my team uh, in the control room to see if they know uh, who wrote that song. Bonnie Raitt sang it. Right. She should be a Duchess of September. Honestly, it, in my opinion, she should. she should. I don't know why she's always trying to play. Pretend that she's not a Duchess of September. What do you want well, the girl she to with do? with John Prine. Yes. Not too long ago. Okay, wait. We're getting the answer. Okay, have... here's the answer, and it's embarrassing because okay. I did know this, and I've seen him perform it. Alan Toussaint, the late great oh, Alan Toussaint, great wrote Alan that song. Okay. Wow. I'm glad. I'm, I'm glad that didn't come back with like Paul Anka or something like that. Because no, been... I know not that, that there's been... anything wrong with Paul Anka. No. But, uh... No. Okay, number three. Number three on my list is magazines, particularly print magazines. I am uh, a, a a print media devotee. I mean, do I uh, access publications on the Internet from time to time? Of course I do. Do I have uh, ready access to the entire uh, uh uh, archive of Esquire magazine yes, you on do. my iPad. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. I mean, you but, do. But <laughs> I, sometimes I forget which is which. You or me? I know we are so. I mean, we are so it, uh, indistinguishable from each other. It's just exactly. ridiculous. It, it really is. Except you got a doer's profile, and I didn't. And where did I see that doer's profile? On the back In of a, a magazine. magazine. Exactly. See, Let's move all. on. Yes. Number four. Okay, number four on my list is the great city of London, England. I go over there without my family, without my wife. I go over there for usually three or four days at a pop, and and then I come home. So London, for me, has become my city. Um, it's, It's personal to me that I go over there. I do all of these things. On my own, I have developed a great uh, affinity for it, a great connection to it uh, that I can then come back and, and tell my family and friends about. And it's like my great adventure that, that I get to tell. Number five. Number five, Papa, Ralph <laughs> Lauren, Mr. <laughs> Ralph Lauren, um, who himself is almost a noun and a verb. Not quite, but... <laughs> I have I have been an admirer of of Ralph Lauren since I was probably in what I guess the kids now call middle school. I mean, going back to probably sixth grade, which would have been 1979, 1980. Uh, of course, you know the the uh, popular and ubiquitous polo shirts is where it all starts. That's the gateway drug. Mm-hmm. But his his clothes. Um, especially his, you know, polo line, the, the traditional stuff has always been a, a staple in my closet for as long as I can remember. As a matter of fact, I have hanging in my closet right now and still in my regular rotation, a, uh, uh, a shirt that uh, was bought for me on my 21st birthday, which wow. for those of you uh, who are not aware, uh, was 30 years ago. 
Wow. Uh, and it's, uh, it, it, it was a, a vibrant salmon color when I bought it with a, a teal polo pony on it. It's now kind of a, uh, a milky peach colored, but uh, it is still structurally uh, good enough that I could wear it to the office if I wanted to. So uh, the craftsmanship uh, that goes into a lot of uh, the polo line uh, is fabulous, but more than anything, I mean, he has he has forged this uh, American lifestyle that is it's attainable, uh, or at least it's something that can be emulated. You know, you may not have the the four hundred dollar cashmere sweater, but you can find something that at least looks like it. I mean, imitation being the sincerest form of flattery, you can build. Uh, a wardrobe that looks very Ralph Lauren without actually being uh, pervade by Ralph Lauren, well, which, of course, I love. But you can also, of course, find these well-made, beautiful clothes at thrift shops. And you Absolutely. can find Ralph Lauren outlets at the better outlets around the how, country. How funny you mention that. How funny that you should mention that hmm. because... Every, as a matter of fact, this Friday, since it's the third Friday of the month, I produce a stand-up comedy show in a cafe that is located in an outlet mall in West St. Louis County that is right across from the Ralph Lauren outlet, the polo outlet. Yes, and I have... Coffee and polo. Does it get better? It does not. Speaking of which, a few years ago... Mr. Lauren decided to get into the coffee business, and because it is Ralph Lauren, of course, he picked only the best and found a wonderful purveyor out of Philadelphia, La Colombe Torrefaction, uh, to produce uh, Ralph's Roast Coffee. Get out. So I, I, I'm serious. I, I had somebody, because at the time it was, and I think it's still only available on the shelf, in New York. You can now purchase it by mail order, but at the time you couldn't. So my sister brought a bag back the last time she was from New York. I had a friend send me a bag. It is wonderful coffee. It what? Is, well, it I is. mean, again, have I ever learned this much? Yacht Rock and Ralph Lauren Coffee. I think yes. this is the most educational podcast we've done in 54 five podcasts and plus we just learned that no lowell george did not write the lyrics this is a a late-breaking story alan toussaint yes alan toussaint wrote the melody and the lyrics why lowell george was credited for them on some website we don't know this is i'm 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 actually getting winded from this honestly this whole you dodged a bullet because i would i would hate for the toussaint estate to come after you for false attribution uh if if you had let this go without crediting lowell george you would have had to pull the episode and then oh well you know what this has just been a fantastic conversation oh what a delight and yale so happy we could do this. And if you ever want me on your podcast, all you have to do is DM me. 
I certainly will. I know where to find you. You know where to find me at all places. Uh, I want to thank our guest, Yale Hollander. You've been listening to Five Things That Make Life Better with me, Lisa Birnbach. You can find the list of Yale's upcoming performances at yaleholander.weebly.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. My blog is at lisabernbach.com, where you'll find links and photos about all the things we spoke about here today. The podcast is produced in New York City by thefieldtv.com. My engineer is Jimmy Regan. Have a good vacation, Jimmy. My team is Spresso Rucci, Michael Port, and Sam Haft. Until next week... Stay cool and act natural. Bye-bye. That was Five Things with Lisa Bernbach. New episodes every Friday, if she remembers.